0: Why does it feel more comfortable to see a white mom on Instagram making homemade popsicles for her kids, and it doesn't feel comfortable to see a black mom in a bodega buying slushies? You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, anti-fat bias, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soulsmith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Laura Thomas, Ph.D., Laura is a registered nutritionist who specializes in responsive feeding and anti-diet, body-affirming nutrition. Her work centers on helping parents and families end intergenerational dieting and body shame and work towards a greater sense of embodiment and ease in their relationship with food. Laura runs the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter and podcast, both of which you should be subscribed to. And she's the author of two books, Just Eat It and How to Just Eat It. So I asked Laura to come onto the podcast because she has been doing amazing work on her substack lately, researching really exhaustive, impeccably researched answers to a topic you guys ask about all the time, which is what do we do about ultra-processed foods? There is so much here. It is about nutrition, yes, but it is also very much bound up in racism and classism and elitism of all kinds. It is limitations of science. It is white men having a lot of opinions. I mean, it's just, it's a a rich tapestry. And we're going to get into it today. Laura and I recorded a really long interview. I think we talked for approximately 100 years. And when I was playing it back and editing the transcripts, I decided this actually is such a big topic. I didn't want to leave out really important aspects of this. So we are doing our first ever two-parter episodes. So today is part one with Laura, where she's going to be giving a big overview on what is an ultra-processed food, what does the research tell us about how these guys impact our health or don't, and how should we be thinking about the current ultra-processed food Discourse. And then next week, you're going to come back for part two, where we will be getting into your nitty gritty questions about navigating ultra processed foods in your own diet, in your family life, all of that good stuff. So here's Laura, but first a quick break. If you like the conversations we have here and want to support the show, I'd love for you to do one or all of the following things. First, make sure to subscribe or follow the show in your podcast player. This way, you will never miss an episode. Second, rate or review the podcast to help other folks find it. Just scroll down in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, tap the stars, and leave us a little note. We like five stars, please, and lots of butter. Third, subscribe to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's free and gets you every podcast transcript, plus all of my essays and reported features, right in your inbox. If you want even more, become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month or 50 for the year. You get lots of bonus content. You keep this an ad and sponsor free space and you enable us to compensate podcast guests for their time and labor, which is key to centering marginalized voices in this space. You can join the list for free or check out the paid options by clicking the link in your episode description or head to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. Whatever you do, thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet, Body Liberation Journalism.
1: All right, so I am a registered nutritionist. I'm based in London, in the UK. I did live in the States for a while, which is why I've got this super messed up accent that <laughs> all your listeners will be like, where is she from? I grew up in Scotland, <laughs> lived in the States, and now I live in London. But yeah, so I'm a registered nutritionist, and I sort of split my time between clinical work, which is focused on family nutrition. So I do a lot of work around responsive feeding in kids who have feeding differences, working with families where, you know, they're just stressed about mealtimes with their kids and also helping parents like sort through their own stuff Mm -hmm. with food and body image. So that's my clinical work. And then I also run a substack called Can I Have Another Snack, which takes up a lot of time, as I know you know. (laughs) Yes, I basically
0: begged you to come on the podcast to talk about the three-part series you have done on your Substack about ultra processed foods. And this Mm -hmm. is just one of those topics. I get so many questions about it all the time. I could be writing an exclusively, as could you, an ultra processed foods focused newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) That would be enough content to sustain a newsletter all by itself. So I've reported it out a little bit here and there. I definitely feel like just as a person in the trenches feeding kids, I have figured out my own values around this, mm-hmm. which is helpful. And we may get into talking about that. But I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist. I haven't done a deep dive of the literature. So when I saw you were doing the series, I was like, oh, thank you, Laura. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for doing this. So that is what we are going to talk through today. We're also linking to all three pieces, and everybody, your homework is to go read all three pieces and subscribe to Laura Substack so you can get more of her work. But okay, so just as a starting point, Laura, what is an ultra-processed food, and why is it so hard for us to agree on that definition?
1: Yeah, so I don't think we can talk about the definition of an ultra-processed food, without talking about the NOVA classification system. Okay. So there are a few different classification systems that have attempted to try and nail down what exactly an ultra-processed food is. So if you look in the nutrition literature, there's like a few different people have done it at different times. But what has been most widely accepted in the literature and what we're seeing a lot of the studies and the headlines coming out about now Is something called the NOVA classification system that was developed in 2009 by this Brazilian dude called Carlos Monteiro. NOVA, really annoyingly, does not stand for anything, it's like not (laughs) an acronym. (laughs) That really fucks me off. But anyway, not
0: helpful. Okay. Looking beyond
1: that, so Carlos is a nutrition researcher. He and his team came up with a system whereby he defines four different levels of food processing. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through the four different groups. Okay. So group one, they call unprocessed foods. This includes anything from a plant, an animal, or a fungus, right? Okay. So that could be fruits and vegetables. It's eggs and meat. It can be like grains, like oats or rice or wheat. And it can be like chilled or frozen fruits and vegetables without salt or oil added mm-hmm. to it. So basically, it's like any raw ingredient that you could buy from the supermarket or that you could like pull straight out of the ground or pick from a tree. That so kind of thing. oats, but not oatmeal or oat bars, like just the oats. Exactly that. Clear. But that's okay. an important clarification. Yeah. So yeah, thank you. And then like within this unprocessed foods category, there's this minimally processed Subcategory, which are things that are maybe like pickled or fermented from those raw ingredients. Okay. So that's group one. I feel like
0: they're already finding weird loopholes that pickled things are part of group one, but okay, keep going, keep going. <laughs>
1: Honestly, it's a minefield. <laughs> and then so group two are processed culinary ingredients. Okay. So these are ingredients that are derived from group one. It can be Oils from like olives or sunflower. It can be salt, spices, herbs, lard, butter, honey, maple syrup, that kind of stuff. Right. So they're kind of like extracts or derived from those group one, minimally processed or unprocessed foods. Got it. Group three, you can sort of think of as group one plus group two mixed together. Okay. And these are called processed foods. And it can be anything from like fresh bread that you buy at a bakery to cheese that has been, you know, fermented and going through mm-hmm. the whole conversion from milk into cheese. Right. Right. But also it includes virtually anything you make yourself at home or anything that you would buy in a restaurant. Right. Cause it's taking those fresh ingredients mm. plus those culinary ingredients like salts and fats and sugars. Mm-hmm. and transforming them into what you and I would recognize as a meal. So I think the point that I want people to understand is that the vast majority of the food that we're eating, even if we're cooking it by ourselves at home from like ingredients that we've picked up at the farmer's market mm-hmm. or the periphery of the grocery store right, right, or whatever it in those is. Aisles. Yeah. yeah, that at minimum, unless we've gone and like pulled a carrot out of the ground, It's a processed food,
0: so processed is just another way of saying cooked. Like processed foods are
1: meals. Yeah, okay, pretty much, unless you're eating a raw apple as a meal. If you doesn't sound, (laughs) yeah, it's not even a snack, right? Right. But if you're dipping your cut up apple in some peanut butter, Uh that's a processed food. Got it. Okay. 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 All right. So then we get to group. Four, which is ultra-processed foods. Now, they've tried to pin down a definition, but there's a lot of different criteria, and simultaneously, the bar for what constitutes an ultra-processed food is actually really low. So, in terms of like a technical definition, an ultra-processed food is a food that is derived from Group One foods. So, for example, whey or casein protein that is taken from milk Uh or gluten taken from whole wheat flour, right? These things would be considered an ultra-processed food. So an ultra-processed food is something that contains ingredients derived from whole food products Mm -hmm. and or contains additives that are intended to either imitate or enhance the sensory qualities of food. So already you're seeing here, it's such a vague definition. Again, it's cooking. Virtually (laughs) anything that you would add to a food, you add to it to make it taste better.
0: Yeah. Right?
1: So those are like part of the definition. Another part of the definition is the type of processing that a food has undergone. So things like hydrogenation, extrusion, molding. These are not things that we're doing at home, really, in our kitchen. Okay? So it's essentially anything that is made in a factory, right? Like cornflakes or Cheerios Mm. have Mm. to go through some sort of extrusion process. A granola bar has to go through like a molding process. Right. So again, like some of these common everyday foods are actually ultra-processed foods. Right. The third like criteria for what constitutes an ultra-processed food is that it has to be a branded food product. So that means that it comes in a package, it's convenient, there's little or minimal cooking, Mm -hmm. and it is marketed somehow at home, right? Like whether that's through the packaging, whether that's through like a nutrition claim, like a health halo type thing, but there's something, you know, like the food manufacturers are doing what they can to try and get you to eat that food. Right, right. Okay. So there's this like really big, vague definition, which means that, yeah, the bar for what actually could count as an ultra-processed food is really low. So you could argue, for example, that like a natural peanut butter, Mm -hmm. which has been like pulverized within an inch of its life and it's like pourable, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's been through so much processing. You could argue that's an ultra-processed food.
0: That's funny. One of the reader questions that came in was: Is the smashed natural peanut butter better for me than Jeff? You know
1: what yeah, people yeah, think yeah. of as a super processed
0: peanut butter, and what you're saying is they would likely be in the same category.
1: They would both be ultra processed foods. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's and really so it it can end up lumping really disparate foods together, mm-hmm. right? So like, like I said, Cheerios and like supermarket bread that you might buy or Mm -hmm. bagels or whatever it might be, are also alongside like Haribo. I don't know. Like I'm trying to think of an an American appropriate example. but
0: Flaming hot Cheetos. Yes, exactly. So that is really interesting because it does show all of the media conversation around ultra processed foods is trying to alert us to these threats, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is this dangerous category of foods you need to be cutting out which we can talk separately about, like, is that even a helpful strategy for nutrition? But that's the goal is to fear monger around all of these foods. And what you're saying is, if you were really going to use the definition that they've laid out, you'd be cutting out like 75% of the grocery store.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And I think it's interesting that you say that it's kind of creating a lot of fear and and stress, I think, about the food and anxiety about the food that we're eating, which I mm. think is true. But one thing that I keep coming back to is that Nova, in and of itself, wasn't designed as a hierarchy, mm. right? But we, in our twisted diet culture brains, have weaponized it as a hierarchy. Because if you think of it from a nutrition perspective, like I said, lard is in group two right right white rice and white flour are in group one right now I'm not saying that they're a bad food but I don't think we would also argue that they're like a health food right 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 but they're in groups one and two so we've kind of manipulated it into a hierarchy but that's not necessarily what it means it's sort of like what we've done with growth charts right like yes. growth charts are
0: just meant to track what percentage point your kid is relative to their peers. Like, oh, they are bigger than 80 percent of kids or they are, you know, yeah. only bigger than 20 percent of kids. And we attach all this meaning to exactly. what those points mean and where's the good part of the growth chart to be in. Well, poor Nova. I feel bad for Carlos that this work got distorted if that was not the intention. Well,
1: you know what? <laughs> yeah. I think he has a part to play in this, but like, okay. maybe we'll get to it because he really has like push this agenda in Brazil. And so now the NOBA classification is being used alongside or it's sort of amalgamated into the dietary guidelines of Brazil, which I don't think is a helpful move. All right. So I'm still mad at Carlos. It's clear from
0: the way you've explained the categories and which foods end up in which groups. But it feels like it's important to say very clearly that processed is not synonymous with has no nutrition Mm -hmm. and that actually processing foods is a good thing to do in order to eat, right?
1: Yeah, well, all forms of cooking are a process, right? So unless you like want to go down some raw vegan Mm -hmm. path, Mm -hmm. you can't really avoid processing your food to some extent. Now, advocates of NOVA, I think, would say "Mm, that's a bit of a red herring because what we're actually talking about is this additional level of processing, this ultra processing sort of phenomenon. But even within that category, I think there are merits to processing, even ultra processing our foods. One of the things that happens when we process food is we extend the shelf life of it. And that means that we are wasting less food overall, which I think we would all agree is probably a helpful thing. But Mm. industrial food processing, it reduces foodborne pathogens. It reduces Mm -hmm. microbes that would spoil food and make things like oils turn rancid faster. Mm -hmm. It also significantly cuts down on the time and labor that it requires to Cook a meal, and I think yeah. that's <laughs> for me as a parent, and yeah. I know for you as well. Yeah. Like that's huge. It's really everything, honestly, for me personally.
0: I'm not saying it should be everything <laughs> for everybody, but limiting the amount of time I spend cooking dinner is the thing that enables me to eat dinner with my family at night.
1: But it's not just like super privileged white women that have a lot of you know nutrition knowledge, right? That benefit from ultra processed foods. I'm also thinking about kids with feeding disorders mm-hmm. that would struggle to get all the nutrition that they need without processed foods. I'm thinking about elderly or disabled people who can maintain a level of independence because they can quickly cook some pasta and throw an ultra-processed jar of pasta sauce mm-hmm. on that and have a nourishing meal. Yeah, I'm thinking about pregnant people who otherwise might not be able to stomach... Eating because of morning sickness and nausea, which we know lasts forever, Forever. not just the morning. Right. So there are so many groups of people that benefit from ultra-processed foods and they just seem to be missing entirely from the conversation around these foods.
0: So often there's this pressure of like, we have to just get poor people cooking more, get them cooking more. And it's like, okay, but if you live in a shelter, you don't have a kitchen. If you are crashing on a couch with family members, you know, in a house with lots of different people, and it's not easy for you to get time in the kitchen. There's so many different scenarios where cooking is not a practical solution. And having greater shelf stability is very
1: important. But it also says a lot about where we place our values, right? And who is making decisions about where we put our values? Mm-hmm. Because it's not everyone's value system to spend more time cooking from scratch right. and buying fresh ingredients and spending more time in the kitchen. So I think there's a line that Carlos Montero wrote in a scientific paper and I legitimately cannot understand how this passed peer review because it's so much about Judgment rather than like an objective scientific argument, where he basically is saying that ultra processed foods prevent families from eating together. And he <gasps> talks about ultra processed foods as though they're the undoing of family meals. Oh, Carlos, no, 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 no. And aside from the fact that, like, for me, and I think for you, and probably a lot of people listening, Ultra process would save family Literally dinners, right? how I'm achieving <laughs> it. Literally how I'm getting it done. But again, it's like who's determining like how we should be eating and, you know, what our values are around yeah. food and eating.
0: You have a great line in part two of the series. I'm going to just read this little chunk that you wrote. My argument is not that we don't need to change the food system. My argument is that the headlines have leapfrogged science, allowing people in places of power and privilege to create fear and shame about the food we eat. This keeps us focused on food as the issue rather than the social, political, and structural forces that shape our lives and our experiences of well-being. Which just feels like exactly what we're getting at here in terms of we are letting this one set of values and this real laser focus on food as a moral concept get in the way of actually thinking about people's
1: lives. Again, the conversation just reducing our health and well-being down to, you know, how processed or otherwise our food is. To me, it feels like symptomatic of these much, much deeper socio-cultural, political problems that mm-hmm. we're facing. And yet again, just a red herring for deeper structural issues that need addressing. Like this is not going to sound like a big number in American terms, but in the UK, well in England alone, there's something like 4 million food insecure children who just simply do not have enough food to eat Yeah, yeah. in a cost of living crisis. That's right. I think public health nutrition should be focusing on universal free school meals for those kids Mm -hmm. and making sure that they have provisions in breakfast clubs and after school clubs rather than quibbling over, you know, whether wheat sticks or a can of baked beans is an ultra processed food. As you're saying
0: this, another question that I get often is, okay, but what about the fact that these processed foods are being produced in ways that are really bad for the environment, that there are huge workers' rights violations happening in the factories, in the fields. Like, these are human rights issues in terms of how these foods are getting made. And I was thinking about this yesterday because—so my 9-year-old, who has a traumatic feeding history and is still Mm -hmm. a very cautious, selective eater— One of her staples is Amy's frozen bean and cheese burritos. Like, it has to be the Amy's brand. We cannot substitute brands. (laughs) It has to be the bean and cheese. It cannot be a different flavor. These burritos are not inexpensive, but we put a good part of our grocery budget towards them because she will eat one every day. And yeah, it's a safe food, and it's covering a lot of nutritional bases for her. So it's a great meal for her. And there's this whole thing that just came out that I'll link to about labor rights violations for Amy's workers. And a friend sent them to me and was like, you know, we're so bummed. We're going to give up eating them. Like, her wife also loves the burritos. And we feel like we should boycott it. And she was not at all saying that Violet you should boycott <laughs> right. yeah. But I just thought, like, this is not a fair game. This is not—I should not have to be thinking, well, now I'm buying a product that is contributing to the exploitation of people in order to feed my child lunch.
1: Both of these Look, things matter. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism, Right. right. And I think the thing that I've come to recognize while researching and writing this piece, there's exploitation and domination at every single level of the food system, regardless of whether that food is ultra-processed or not, right? So so just confining that argument to ultra-processed foods, I think is missing the point because it's right. the entirety of the food system, even if we were just, you know, eating Corn straight off the cob, right?
0: The people picking the
1: corn are still being exploited. Yes. And this is the part that I found most disturbing and upsetting when I was writing about was the human rights violations. And I don't have an answer to that. I don't know how we reconcile that. But I think this comes up a lot on my sub stack as well: is how can we hold companies and businesses and systems accountable? Mm -hmm. Because what you're saying is kind of making it an individual responsibility thing. Right, right. And we need systemic change and we need systemic action. And there are certainly things that I do where I think, okay, this feels like a more ethical decision than this other decision. Yeah. But we all have to make these compromises somewhere along the lines. And again, that's not letting those companies off the hook. That's one thing since this piece published last month. I've had so many invitations from the food industry to be like, oh, come to this round table talk or this panel. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not here to defend you. Right. I'm right. Not, My one bias in this whole thing is that I'm a nutritionist and I want people to be nourished. Right. right? That's my only bias. Right. I am not a shrill for the food industry. I'm not here to make you feel better about the shapings that you're doing. Right. But I am here to relieve guilt And shame and stigma and judgment about the food choices that we're making. The person that's eating this food is not responsible for the she practices and systems and policies in place.
0: And the ability to participate in a boycott, to say, I'm going to shop differently and try to only support the most ethical brands I can, involves a ton of privilege. That is not an option that's available for me with my nine year old because this is her lunch and I'm not going to take away her lunch. (laughs) But it's an option for me to. If I hear about, you know, if there's a brand that is not one of our, like, must-have brands, like, yeah, I'll buy a different brand. You know, we try really hard to source ethical coffee Mm -hmm. because only my husband and I drink it and because we have the financial privilege to be super bougie about our coffee, you know, (laughs) but that's not a solution to the fact that coffee workers are treated so terribly because it's a drop in the bucket. And it it really does strike me as using
1: a diet culture mindset Mm -hmm. to solve these problems. Right anytime there's a binary, I get really skeptical. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can say, I don't feel great about buying this product. And I'm going to write to my representatives Mm -hmm. or you know, whatever you can do within the means that you have and within the resources that you have available to you.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I think it is important to say that I'm not, like, letting us all off the hook, and I don't think Laura is either. I'm not saying, like, well, we can just sit back and let it all be (laughs) terrible because my kid needs to eat this burrito. Like, I need to find out if there's a workers' rights fund for that company. You know, can I donate to their strike in some way? Like, that I would love to do. We do need to think more creatively about how can we be showing up on these issues and not just make it, like, well, my grocery list needs to get a gold star on this because that's—we're never going to achieve that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also
0: want to drill in a little more on the nutrition piece of this, because I think, you know, we've been talking about, okay, so this category is too broad. It's super messy. You've got my pasta sauce and my Flaming Hot Cheetos all in there. But a lot of folks are going to say, okay, but we can all clearly see that the Flaming Hot Cheetos are not nutrition and the pasta sauce is, or whatever. I mean, maybe some people would also question my pasta sauce choice. I don't know. But <laughs> Would it be more useful to develop a fifth category? Like, does the system need to be more rigid and have a clear category of, no, these are what we really mean when we talk about ultra-processed foods? Or is that also not
1: actually serving us to keep categorizing in this way? I don't think a fifth category would be helpful because I come back to the idea that this was never intended to be a personal project, right? This system of categorization, I think in its original inception, was designed to be a tool for public health and nutrition researchers to use to study patterns in the diet over time. When we were not imbuing it with social meaning i think there's nothing inherently wrong with that mm-hmm. but i think it's when we apply it to our personal lives and then it becomes this hierarchy or like you say that we get a gold star if we only have foods from group 1 and 2 which mm-hmm. as we just talked about is virtually impossible right that's where it becomes a problem i think the evidence around ultra processed foods is not as clear cut as i think the headlines are reporting yes so this is what I talked about in part two of my series. And I spoke with Emily Oster, who, you know, kind of helped walk me through some of the problems with these big observational studies that we have around ultra-processed foods. So there's been this explosion in the literature in the past, particularly five years, around ultra-processed foods, where they are linking ultra-processed foods to type 2 diabetes, to cardiovascular disease, to cancers to all kinds of really terrifying scary health outcomes but even though i say there's been an explosion in the literature there are actually very few meta-analyses so like that sort of top tier gold standard study that ratify some of these smaller observational studies mm. So that's one problem. And the problem is the media
0: reports on the small observational studies as if they are gold standard meta-analysis involving like 5 million people. They're not saying this is extremely new data and we haven't, you know, replicated it very much. And they never give that framing. And that's why we see the anxiety rise, because it's all presented as if it's equally
1: valid data. There's a lot of hyperbole and there's a lot of conjecture in the media reports that I'm seeing and reading. Because we do have a couple of meta-analyses, but they're not exactly showing these huge effect sizes that, again, that we're seeing in the reporting or the way that it's being talked about in the reporting is kind of leapfrogging what Mm -hmm. the findings of these studies are. So it's not that there is no effect whatsoever with ultra processed food. I think it's more about the magnitude of this effect where there's a disconnect. So say more about that. So mostly what you are seeing reported in these studies is a relative risk. So what we're saying is that, right, let's say for argument's sake, Virginia, you know, your diet is less than 25% ultra-processed food, and I'm in the 75% and up group, right? So I'm Mm -hmm. in the highest quarter, you're in the lowest quarter. Mm -hmm. What these studies are saying, and I'm plucking these numbers out of thin air, is they might say that my risk of whatever disease is 30% higher than yours. So that's telling us about the relative risk between you and me. Mm -hmm. What it's not telling us is our absolute risk. Mm. So if your starting risk is 2%, And then mine's is 30% more than two. I can't even do that math. It's tiny. Right. 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 It hasn't even doubled. We're not even at 4%. Exactly. Yeah. So if we're reporting the relative risk or the odds ratio, you don't need to worry about that. But it means that picture is construed as being much, much worse than it might actually be. So that's one issue that we have with this science. The second issue is that when we look at people in the 25% lowest intake of ultra-processed food versus the 75% and higher Mm -hmm. intake. The people in those groups are different on virtually every single metric that we're measuring Mm -hmm. them on. Mm -hmm. So they're different in terms of family history of things like cancer and heart disease and type 2 diabetes. They have different incomes, different education levels, they live in different housing, like the safety of their neighborhoods is different. Mm. They're just very different on virtually every other metric. So we can't tease apart whether or not the effect that increased relative risk is due to the food that they're eating or some other variable that we haven't adjusted for in our statistical modeling. So that's called a confounding or residual variable. So important. That's true of most big observational nutrition studies, you know, not just in ultra-processed foods. There's like, there's a lot of holes in nutrition research. Across the board, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think it's wrong to say that if we have a diet high in fruit and vegetables and whole grains, that, you know, we will generally have better health outcomes, not necessarily so. But it might also be because of some other factor that we're not measuring. Mm -hmm. It's probably both, right? It's probably partly, you know, the food that we're eating, but also all these other variables like stress, social connection, Mm -hmm. income, education, all of these other things. Our experience of anti bias and discrimination, of racism, all of these things are not accounted for in these studies.
0: I think this is The thing that feels hardest to communicate because it's like when we're talking about ultra processed foods, really anytime there's like a food bad guy, right? When it's carb fear, when it's sugar fear, when it was about fat and food, the conversation narrows down to talking about that one food in this very unhelpful way. And it's really hard to open the conversation back up. So I really appreciate you laying all that out. I'm just thinking of everyone who... This is a topic that comes up at dinners with extended family members. You know, this is a topic that comes up in the doctor's office where there's like this immediate shaming knee jerk reaction to, oh, sure, intuitive eating sounds nice, but you don't mean you can just eat as much junk food as you want. You know, you don't mean you can just eat processed foods. It's just so important for all of us to sort of hold, even if you can't say it all in the moment, it's important to hold on to the science is not as set as people think on this. There are a lot of big questions that we have not answered, and we are drawing
1: majorly speculative conclusions from this data. And nutrition isn't all or nothing, right? There is, I think, space in our diets for ultra-processed food, and it doesn't mean that we're suddenly not eating any fresh foods. And I think that conversation gets tricky as well because there are also some people that have absolutely no choice but to eat ultra-processed foods. And so, again, my bias as a nutritionist is like, well, okay, well, how can we make sure that they are getting all the nutrition that they need from Mm -hmm. those ultra-processed foods? Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was a study that came out from some Australian researchers and their concern, based on what they found, was that if we were to remove ultra-processed foods from the diet, because a high proportion of ultra-processed foods are fortified with really important nutrients, essential nutrients, that we would actually be putting more people at risk of deficiency. That's a great point. Like you're saying, doctors are lumping all ultra-processed foods together and sort of being like, you know, a lot of hand around them, mm-hmm. when in actual fact they can be a really important source of nutrients for a lot of people.
0: This is like why we don't have scurvy anymore, guys. Like, it's a good thing. (laughs) And I just also, too, want to make sure we name very clearly the classism and the racism bound up in this. Like, there's a reason when throwing out Flaming Hot Cheetos is the example here, right? There's a knee-jerk assumption in public health in the larger discourse around this topic that certain groups of people are only eating a certain category within the ultra-processed foods category. And there's then no examination of, A, if that's even true. It's most likely absolutely not true. And B, what factors might be creating the circumstance? Like,
1: what is driving that? It's not just people's ignorance. And I think that this is the piece that public health nutrition seemed to be missing. When I was researching this, I subjected myself to a lot of continuing professional development webinars and seminars and things like this. It was rough. We are grateful for your labor, Laura. And I sat in on webinars by my colleagues going through ultra processed foods and, you know, talking about lots lot of the things that I mentioned about the problems around classification and, you know, how they're an important source of nutrients for some people. And there was this thread running through their conversations of like, We need to be really careful because people rely on ultra processed foods because they're really busy. You know, we're really stressed in our lives and they're convenient. And that's where that thread stopped. Mm. And I was like, come on, let's tug on that a bit more. Just pull that thread a bit further. Why are people stressed? Why don't they have time to cook? I mean, a set inside, that's not necessarily everyone's values, but what is going on? that is driving this phenomenon, right? And we have to bring it back to late-stage capitalism, the disillusion of community, hyper-individuality, the fact that we have to sell our labor for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, that we don't have the systems of care and community in place that we might otherwise have that help us feed each other, help us Mm -hmm. nourish each other. Mm -hmm. And I think... You know, unless we are addressing these underlying systems, then we aren't going to get to a place where, you know, Cheetos or whatever other food it is is something that you could take relief. Yeah. Rather than it being something you have to eat out of necessity.
0: You're saying it is great to acknowledge that convenience foods are necessary, that people mm-hmm. are busy and that we rely on these things. But what if we shift our focus as a public health community to looking at Why is this much convenience necessary? What other supports do they need in their lives? Because it's probably affordable childcare. We're making the problem the Cheetos or the ramen noodles, whatever. We're making that the problem when it's all these other issues. And I think, too, there's also the classism and racism bound up in, like, who we think is entitled to pleasure with food Mm -hmm. and who we think is entitled to a break. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why does it feel more comfortable to see a white mom on Instagram making homemade popsicles for her kids and it doesn't feel comfortable to see a black mom in a bodega buying slushies yes and you know how much and who we think deserves that like moment of connection and fun mm-hmm. who we think deserves fun with food you know
1: yeah a hundred percent there's so many layers to it it feels like it's just not really about the food it's about all of these other, like I said before, the deeper socio-political and structural inequalities that determine our health and well-being.
0: Well, this has been just like such a mind-blowingly helpful conversation. I so appreciate you walking us through, again, your extremely extensive research on this. this I think a lot of people are going to be coming away just having a lot of this reframed in really
1: useful ways. So thank you so, so much for this. I hope I have clarify things rather than make things more confusing. But I promise like in the pieces that I've written, I've done like little crib sheets so that things are a little more digestible.
0: So of course, you know, we end every podcast episode with butter. So Laura, what is your butter?
1: All right. So my butter is birthday trees. Birthday trees. Yes. So my bait just turned three and we'd just taken down his birthday tree and this kind of started off as a joke with my nephew where when he was a little younger I don't know he was like four or five we were kind of like trying to punk my sister-in-law by saying to our nephew that when you have a birthday you put up a birthday tree like Jesus does at Christmas right (laughs) (laughs) And your
0: sister-in-law was like,
1: thank you for this expectation. (laughs) So he didn't like do what we were hoping that he would do and it never like materialized. So we decided to take this one step further and invest in when we had our kid invest in a bright pink snow covered (gasps) Christmas tree that comes out for everyone's birthday in our house. So mine, my husband and my kids. And yeah, we put all the birthday presents under it, and it's just like part of the decoration. But it feels like—don't get me wrong—it's like it's extra. Nobody needs to do this, right? Right. But, but it joy. is very fun. it's just It's joy. very joyful. Yeah, and it's fun to take like pictures of Avery next to the birthday tree. As oh, getting this bigger. is magical. And do you decorate it with ornaments, or do you just? Oh call no, the God no, Jesus! Okay. <laughs> I have some like string battery lights that say "Happy Birthday," and if you're lucky, I will put them nice on it but no like that's too much (laughs) i love
0: a like low-key birthday tradition because he's only three but as he gets older this will be the thing that makes him feel like his birthday is super special that it's just like i love that it's That's so awesome. Our family birthday tradition is that you get ice cream in bed on your birthday. And again, pretty low-key. I can do it on a weekday, even when we have school, because I'm just scooping out your ice cream and bringing it (laughs) to you in bed. You know, it's not a big elaborate thing. It's like sort of a farce when it's my birthday, because I wake up the earliest and I have to like go back (laughs) to bed. No, I don't make my own. Oh, okay. But like, I'm like up and I go downstairs and have my coffee and my breakfast. And then I go back to bed, so then they bring it into me. But it's been cool because, like, I started it when my older daughter was around that age. And the first few years, like, I actually remember my younger daughter sobbing the first time we came in with the birthday ice cream because she was, like, just turning three. And she just wasn't expecting it. it oh, my God. She left her routine, and she's like, what are you doing? I just want to come downstairs. So it can feel but, wonky in the beginning and now at 5 and 9 it's like
1: cemented
0: like we will yes. bring the birthday ice cream we are so into it what flavor am i having and it's yeah awesome
1: it becomes like yeah this whole thing yeah but it's really fun i highly recommend birthday tree
0: yeah that is a great i kind of want to steal it i love it
1: have it i will take the ice cream breakfast <laughs>
0: <laughs> but also we don't need two birthday traditions cuz now we're making our lives hard so you know yeah that's true i'll just enjoy yours All right. My better this week, speaking of breakfast, is that it is finally warm enough to eat breakfast outside on my front porch, which is an annual source of major joy in my life because it's just quiet and I can see my garden and there's birds and I don't know what they are, but they're pretty sounding (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like... Every year I get so excited and I spend, because it takes a while where we live to get warm enough early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so I spend like most of April and May, like checking the temperature and being like, oh, it's still, okay. like I'll be out there in like a big sweater and a coat. Being and like, you Yeah.
1: Like it's <laughs> breakfast
0: outside season. It's really not. But we're finally reliably getting into like warm enough mornings and it just brings me a lot of joy.
1: Oh, I love like summer and spring in New York. They're so nice yeah. after the
0: fucking we earn a knee high
1: snow in yeah. the in December. yeah January. we work for it
0: we work for it thanks so much for listening to burnt toast if you'd like to support the show please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and leave us a rating or review these really help folks find the podcast and help us grow you can also consider a paid subscription to the burnt toast newsletter it's just $5 a month or 50 for the year. You'll get a ton of cool perks, and you'll keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at V underscore Soul Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.